now we're all experienced this COVID-19, the amount of people using our parks and open spaces and public spaces really reinforces that need to get out, have a walk, declutter, de-stress, be in fresh air and uh, how beneficial that is. The gathering of people and the growing of plants for their the benefit of their health and well-being. Nature is absolutely vital to our health and well-being and the more we let it in, the better we're going to be. In this episode, we're looking at how green spaces can better your mental health and how the COVID-19 pandemic has reshaped our relationship with nature. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. On the 13th of March 2020, Australia established a national cabinet to respond to the coronavirus. Life is going to continue to change as we deal with the global coronavirus. By the 22nd, pubs, clubs, cafes and restaurants were closed. Then later, the gyms, cinemas, casinos, nightclubs and entertainment venues also shut their doors. You shouldn't really be leaving home unless it's for work, for school, for essential things that you need to buy or else if you need to seek medical attention or exercise. They're really the only reasons you should be leaving your home. If you can work from home, you should. If you can learn from home, you should. Uh, If you can do everything from home, you should. It's only in these very exceptional circumstances that you should be leaving home. Soon it was just us. But after hours of jigsaw puzzles and baking sourdough, many felt the need to venture outdoors. For the first time in days or weeks, people were seeing trees, grass and nature up close again, something we often take for granted. We hear a lot about biophilia. Well, biophilia, you know, the feeling of, of, of you know, nature and, and what it gives to you. The biophilia hypothesis was coined in 1987 by E.O. Wilson. Which is literally like a love of life or a love of living systems. And if you think about um, our subconsciousness, we always kind of want to go into nature. So, you know, if we go on a holiday, we want to go to you know, places that look very nice, but they're very nature-focused areas. So we have this kind of innate yearning, uh, a desire, a want to be part of nature. Dr Peter Erger is a research fellow in civil and environmental engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney. I mainly look at how we could use green infrastructure and plans to improve urban environments. If you had a good view, for example, or you had a desk with a a view at a workplace, um, there was evidence to suggest that you were less stressed, you would have lower blood pressure, you would take less sick leave. That research is now extended to, for example, prisons. The prisoners are less violent if they have a view of nature or if they have plants that are present or if they work in gardens. Um, We also see evidence from uh, hospitals uh, with people recovering. 
from surgeries. The recovery time is lessened if they have plants present, uh, for example, like flowers. While it's aesthetic, there's also an economic benefit to plants in the workplace, where research suggests it improves productivity. So there's been studies where if you have a plant present in your workplace, you're 60% less likely to take sick leave than if you didn't have a plant present. So often the research coming out of this space is an economic one uh, that businesses have adapted. If you had plants present in your office at work, you would be less sick or less inclined to take sick leave. You'd be more productive and you'd be less stressed. The benefits of plants and being in nature became clear at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. In Australia, the demand for seeds and gardening tools jumped by 17% in March. I think it's partly just an excuse to be outside, to get out and see, you know, those seeds that they helped to plant because they helped to build the garden and they, they put the seeds in, they have this real, it's, I've got to check on them, you know, to see if they're growing. And it's that nurturing part that's inside our DNA. This is Phil Pettit. He is the Community Greening Coordinator at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Sydney. It was around 20 years ago when the Botanic Gardens decided to start the Community Greening Program, building community gardens in social housing blocks. They now have gardens far and wide, from Burke to Illawarra, Eden to Mount Druitt. They have around 800 community gardens across New South Wales. It's to um, take the uh, expertise and inspiration of plants and horticulture beyond the garden walls and, um, you know, to support and empower people living in social housing and uh, communities that may not always be able to visit the Botanic Gardens in Sydney. So we sort of take our, our knowledge and experience out to them. That's where Professor Tonya Gray comes in. I was lucky to sit next to Tonya Gray on a plane to Dubbo to a conference about, I don't know, six years ago now. When she heard about the program, she wanted to research the impact the community gardens had on social housing communities. Nature is absolutely vital to our health and well-being. And the more we let it in, the better we're going to be. The research with Western Sydney University found that the community greening program reduces people's anxiety and stress, helps form a sense of pride and belonging, and motivates people to eat healthier. Probably since 1970, this is when the evidence started to mount, where we realised that ecotherapy or outdoor therapy or horticultural therapy was so important for people because there was this mental health link that we could see not only an individual but a community change as a result of having let nature in. The program has had great outcomes for tenants and the community's mental health. Phil from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, says one in three people in social housing are impacted by mental illness, whether they themselves, a partner or a neighbour. The Community Greening Program works not only with social housing tenants, but also with schools. 
a lot of the schools that we support have new arrivals and a lot of Assyrian refugees. And so the garden is their way um, of learning the language through things that they're familiar with. So then that, that's food and, and growing food, you know, in an outdoor setting, working side by side. It's a well-known fact that sort of therapy is not invasive to people. You might think of therapy as something that takes place in an office, but horticultural therapy takes the therapy outdoors. It usually involves a small group participating in gardening with a trained therapist. Horticultural therapy or social and therapeutic horticulture, the two different sort of terms that can be being outdoors combined with that fact of not that face-to-face counselling environment can be very therapeutic and, and, and allow people to open up. The therapy is for people undergoing rehabilitation, people with a disability, dementia or for mental health. Phil told me about the impact the community garden had on the school children. Particularly a lot of new arrivals um, and, and people fleeing um, you know, other countries have children with disabilities, so there's quite a significant number of them. Along with children with disabilities, Phil says there are also many children with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, who have high anxiety levels and sensitivity to noises. For a few months, they've just laid down at the entrance to the garden and not entered the garden. And then after, say, you know, three, six months of regular um, activities at the garden with the other kids, they've eventually started to come in. And, and some of those children have become actually the key workers for the little, you know, support unit there. Uh, in maintaining and looking after the garden. So they've really transformed from not being able to go into a sort of confined space um, and being fearful of insects and things and, and plants to then being, you know, really involved in it, benefiting from all the senses, you know, the smells and, and, and things like that, where initially they're kind of overwhelmed by a lot. So. While horticultural therapy has existed for a long time, it hasn't become widely recognised or mainstream in Australia. There are currently no accredited training courses for social and therapeutic horticulture in the country. The national body Therapeutic Horticultural Australia was only established in 2018, with the hope to develop a dedicated course to expand on the short courses that already exist. They say most of the movement for recognition for horticultural therapy in Australia is at ground level, with volunteers assisting health workers in the garden, as well as researchers promoting it in the health field. The New South Wales peak body Cultivate New South Wales have been running for over 30 years. They are trying to grow the profession by providing workshops which are high in demand and connecting people together. To get my head around horticultural therapy, I decided to have a chat with Dr Fiona Orr, a senior lecturer in mental health nursing, and Professor Sarah Wilkinson from the School of Built Environment at the University of Technology, Sydney, to hear about a program they worked on a few years ago. We couldn't get down to that train quick enough. Arlene, we'd slip yeah. out of work at, you know, whatever time, one thirty to get over for our 2 o'clock session at King's Cross. 
In 2016, a small group of mental health outpatients met at a rooftop garden on top of St Canice's Church in Sydney's inner city King's Cross. Fiona and Sarah were not only the researchers, but they also participated in the program. It wasn't just sort of gardening and fixing garden beds and potting and planting. That was part of it. But it was really getting us as participants to... um, get in tune with how we felt, how our senses were being, I guess, stimulated by being part of this program. And each week the therapist tended to focus on a, a sense, didn't she, Sarah? Like yeah. what we could smell, uh, what mm. we could see, uh, what we could hear, what we could taste. For some things we couldn't mm. taste. We made some food from mm. some of the products that were grown. We made herb teas, chili chocolate. Um, <laughs> Zucchini spaghetti. I mean, you can see their memories are still very vivid for me. But um, when we look at the kind of things the participants said when we interviewed them, they talked about things like just being out in fresh air and open space, having somewhere to think about things in your life, but also having somewhere to relax and not worry about things that were going on in your life. For one man in particular, he said it took his mind off his voices. He was somebody who often heard voices and heard them frequently. He said, when I come here and I'm doing this and I'm with the others, um, I'm, not, I'm not getting distracted by voices. They're going on, but I'm not sort of, you know, engaging with that. I'm immersed in this. He says, I live here with a smile every time. But sometimes a garden isn't enough. During the peak of COVID-19, many people were only able to access green spaces close to home instead of hopping in the car to go to their chosen beach or national park. So when people went out to their local green spaces, they began to discover the ratio of greenery to people. Could people enjoy the space while physically distancing? Is the area big enough? And is it accessible? The reality is not everyone has access to green spaces. A combined research study with the University of Wollongong, University of Melbourne and the University of Western Sydney found that green space availability was substantively lower in areas with a higher percentage of low-income residents. And while it varied between Australian capital cities, they believe the inequitable distribution of green spaces could exacerbate health inequalities if people on lower incomes who are already at greater risk of preventable diseases have poorer access. Tonya says green spaces need to be included in local council development decisions. Those of lower socioeconomic um, communities have less access to nature. It's generally the wealthy suburbs such as St Ives and so on that have got the beautiful leafy streets and access to to green parks etc. So yes it does sort of go hand in hand with wealth. Our urban designers and architects need to be just as aware of all this 
information as what educators are because we need more green in the decisions made in local councils when you know development plans go through and so on and and not having these small tiny urban blocks where you can basically touch the Colobon fence next to you and have such tiny backyards that yet again nature is becoming a um an endangered species in itself or contact with nature is an endangered species In 2017, as part of the Greener Spaces, Better Places national initiative, researchers from the RMIT University and Call Hub released a report, Where Should All the Trees Go? It's apparently Australia's only national guide to canopy, shrub and hardcover by state and local government area. In the report, they created a vulnerability indicator. The vulnerability basically calculated how vulnerable an area is by how hot the area could get on its hottest day, how healthy the people in the area are if they can cope with the prolonged heat, and then if the area is losing its green spaces. The areas that are least vulnerable in New South Wales are the affluent, the leafy northern Sydney area of Karingai and Mossman, while the most vulnerable areas in the state include Blacktown in Sydney's west and Rockdale in southern Sydney. So, is this making green spaces a luxury? Professor Sarah Wilkinson, a chartered building surveyor from the School of Built Environment at the University of Technology, Sydney, said now is the time to have these discussions. It could be a good opportunity now because, as I say, I think there's this sort of appreciation of uh, nature, public parks and spaces with this pause we've had. And um, it might then be some, might be a way to stimulate the economy again with something positive uh, to try and get more green infrastructure in our city centres. So, with an extended time in our homes and exploring nature close by, I was curious to question what would come out of the reinvigorated discussion on nature and mental health. Has quarantine changed our perspective surrounding humans' relationship with nature? The coordinator of the Community Greening Program, Phil Pettit, hopes that the time spent in the garden has increased the awareness of caring for the earth and working together as a community. I hope that this period of isolation will increase our respect for the environment and our understanding of its importance. You can see just by the shelves in supermarkets and hardware stores that people have been growing their own food. And, and taking that as a project to do while they're isolated, where they have the space to do that. So you can see gardening is a real, not just an essential thing for us to provide food for ourselves, but it's a great, people understand innately that it's a great project for them to do if they're kind of cooped up. As the coronavirus lockdown measures ease, many people may remember this period as the time they spent at home and in the garden. 
I asked Tonya in mid-April, at the peak of the lockdown, how we can get a dose of nature. I'm thinking that a lot of people who don't have the privilege that I do of living in a rural community must be feeling like a caged up lion right now. So however you can attune yourself to blue or green is vitally important for your mental health. Even being aware of what other aspects of nature can you do, like whether it's meditation with nature sound, uh, getting your hands in the soil, building a garden with your children. You will be so much better off as a result of looking at what the abundance of nature is in your own backyard. I think nature is only as close as we make it. We can always jump on a bus or a train or whatever to get yourself to a spot where nature exists. I think and I hope that there will be a greater respect for the environment and I hope that I'm hearing in other parts of the world that they're planning to come out of this with a, a more environmentally uh, friendly economy and way of living. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.